Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much indeed for tuning in wherever you are around the world and indeed around the whole of the UK. And actually, the weekly podcast has already gone out. You've already had it. But I did semi-pledge during that podcast that I might uh, return because we didn't have time for your brilliant questions. Uh, The podcast was a special, the last Edinburgh show, the 14th Edinburgh show. Uh, And um, so I did kind of, but I left, I was clever. I was like a wily political leader. I did leave myself some get out clauses and said, I might, it's not definite, uh, come back and do the questions. But I have reread the questions. They're so good. I thought we've got to get them in. Uh, Now I've had hundreds. Uh, None of you obviously were on the beach. Uh, You were all obviously getting involved in the rock and roll politics cooperative in all kinds of uh, different ways. But the questions are terrific and varied and cast light on where we are. Now I haven't got time to read them all out. But the fact that we're doing this special should mean there's a bit more time for the other questions when we do the regular weekly podcast in a few days' time. Uh, So that's where we are. I just thought, um, as I'm back with you all, I would reflect uh, briefly, very briefly, on a story that's otherwise going to quickly go away. And in some cases, you know, it deserves to. It's it's about the whole BBC thing, Emily Maitlis's observations about Robbie Gibb and his influence in the BBC and one or two other kind of related incidents. Um, And I only do so because actually the media does mediate politics. So although on one level it's so incestuous when journalists talk about journalism, uh, it is the way in which one way or another we all get to see, hear, read about politics. And the BBC, though less important than it once was, still is interesting and significant as a mediator of news. It gets big audiences still. Again, not as much as it used to do, but quite big audiences. And I thought what was interesting about Emily Maitlis's talk, uh, the, the stuff that got the news was her comment about there being an agent of the government or the Conservative Party at the in the upper echelons on the board or whatever of the BBC. And she meant Robbie Gibb, Sir Robbie Gibb, as he is now. And a lot of people who kind of back remain and loathe this government sort of cheered and all the rest of it on Twitter and elsewhere. And others who kind of are hardline Brexiteers and like this government condemned it. And, or, you know, and of course the BBC or some in the BBC kind of contributed by talking about the need for impartiality in rather generalized terms. So I take a kind of slightly different take, which is this. I think it's absolutely fine for Robbie Gibb to be where he is. In a way, it's a more honest position than anyone else uh, within the BBC in that he is now openly a committed Brexiteer and Tory. Everyone who has any dealings with Robbie in the BBC now know that that's where he comes from. And he has every right uh, to express 
his views, which are well known. I happen not to agree not only with his substantive views about Brexit and other uh, economic policy, but I don't agree with his views uh, that the BBC lapses into kind of remainery left of centre liberalism. I've never seen anything to suggest that at all. I can't move from people in the BBC of two sorts. Quite a few who've gone on to work for this Conservative government, including Robbie himself, used to edit all the political programmes. I did quite a lot of work for some of his programmes. Gito Harry was a fellow BBC political correspondent with me. He's in his dying days as Boris Johnson's press secretary. And so on. There are many other examples, endless editors of that awful Question Time programme who've gone to work for the Conservative Party and so on. But so what? You know, if he wants to hold these views and put them across at the BBC, it, it's good that they have people. He certainly is gripped by politics and understands uh, politics uh, to a deeper extent than a lot of the people in the BBC. The issue is this, how you then deal with uh, his arguments and assertions and whether they are properly weighed up by others within the BBC. And this is the problem, because what happens in the BBC is that there are these kind of layers of senior managers in this very odd position. I mean, the civil service is the only equivalent place where they don't express any views, and yet they attend meetings all the time. It's what they do is attend meetings. But they're not, they can't do what normal people do when reflecting on politics or current affairs and so on and partly frame their arguments from the position in which they themselves stand, which is what Robbie Gibb does entirely legitimately. It's why so many of these meetings are famous for an exchange of banalities, because there isn't much more they can say or do beyond other banalities about impartiality, and we need to hear more from the people, you know, we need to get out of London, all these things which have been cliches for decades and decades, and each one time it's expressed again, people think it's a fresh take on the way to do things. So it's great that he's there, frankly, I don't mind at all, but you do have to weigh it up and challenge. But what these layers of managers do, many of them, by the way, as individuals, perfectly smart and interesting, you know, but they've become cocooned in highly paid jobs with imprecise links to the output. Therefore, whenever anything goes wrong, famously, it's very hard to work out who was responsible. And when statements are made, they uh, for the BBC, there's no name attached. So they're all kind of cocooned and, and so on. And the one thing they do actively think about is how to be remain protected in this cocoon, these cocoon well-paid jobs. And one of the things they calculate is what will please the Director General. Now, this is where it gets complicated with someone like Robbie Gibb because the current Director General was himself once a Conservative candidate in local elections or whatever, and has taken this stance of wanting to appease or at least reassure this government as licence fee negotiations continue. And the current BBC chairman was a big Tory donor. And this will kind of permeate through to these layers of managers. How do we keep our jobs? How do we impress the manager above us? And that's when I suspect resistance or serious challenging 
of Robbie Gibb won't happen. There should be, you know, you could have a Labour person as well there, and they would need to be challenged as well if they asserted, you know, to do more stuff that is uh, kind of reflecting Labour's position as far as that can be defined at the moment. So that's the problem and explains a lot. You know, the kind of, I remember I I knew quite well uh, John Burt when he was Director General, and he was the last formidable one that they've had. And he used to say to me, it's very hard to, you know, he, he was a bit of a control freak, but he really struggled to assert control. He had a clear idea of what he wanted to do. But even then, the editors tried to please him with whatever he was sort of proclaiming at the time. And this lot are doing the same. You know, so when Greg Dyke came in, I remember uh, a manager telling me at a meeting, Greg Dyke said, oh, what's happened to Andrew Neal? Why aren't we using Andrew Neal? And suddenly he was on 25 programmes. Um, now, Andrew Neal is a good interviewer and presenter. He 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 has a, a kind of weightiness and a compelling, uh, I mean, comes from it, I think, from a certain perspective, but it, it, he is compelling. But he was on everything. Suddenly he was presenting every pr- programme. And that was each editor thinking, oh, yeah, that, that that saves me. And I know editors of some of these panel programs who watch other BBC programs say, oh, if they are using that, I can, it's safe. It's the reason that, um, I mean, Amal Rajan gets every, it's a joke, you know, is, is he going to present Match of the Day? Is he going to be the only person singing at the last night of the proms and so on? You know, I don't blame Amal, you know, who wouldn't take these wonderful jobs? But again, the reason it happens is the director general likes him and rates him and should do. Um, uh, And therefore, the managers have picked up that that's the case. And therefore, it's very safe because the director general will approve if Amol gets match of the day and all the other things. So that's, that's kind of how it works. And that's where there is a problem when you have a strong figure like Robbie Gibb with very strong views about what he thinks is wrong. It's not challenging. Now, people say he tried to stop. Um, I've no idea whether he did. I haven't been following it. An editor from coming back, she used to do Newsnight, Jez, Jess Bramer. I uh, assume he did. I read about it. And people say, oh, but he didn't get his way. But by God, was that appointment delayed for weeks, if not months, as panicky managers tried to work out which way to move, whether they did veto her as he wants, because that's what their manager above them wants, and so on. And this is one of the dangers. Uh, And the other danger is it doesn't lead to creative thinking about what is an impartial news organisation now. It's why they've lost quite a few people. They could have kept John Sopel, Emily Maitlis, Andrew Ma, and others if they had thought creatively about how to use them, but it doesn't lead to that kind of creative thinking, some of which can be very simple. There's an email today from somebody about why the programme called Dateline, which is on BBC World and News 24, where a panel reflect on two or three of the big events around the world that week, um, and they're outsiders and therefore have the freedom to reflect um, without worrying about the constraints of impartiality. And it's a good discussion programme. The issue should have been for these managers, is half an hour long enough? Why don't we make it 45 minutes or an hour? But they don't think like that. They are scared of letting things breathe. In the BBC leaders debate, they not only had the two candidates and a presenter, but they thought, oh my God, we better throw in our economics editor and our political editor so they can ask questions as well. Of course, the whole thing then becomes ridiculously compressed and nothing can really develop. Um, These are simple things that are are robust and proactive and thoughtful uh, single 
news and current affairs manager could bring about these changes. But um, I'm told, I've talked about this before in a previous podcast with the BBC political editor, it was, oh, we need someone to get me scoops. You know, we've got to beat ICM, we've got to beat Sky, all this adolescent thinking about news. And then when they kind of selected the brilliant scoop getters in the world of political journalism, they panicked because they had tweeted about Brexit and Johnson in the, oh my God, we can't go near there. And then they went for a different route, shall we say. Anyway, those are the issues. You've got to have people with an interest and background in politics because they understand politics on the whole more than these people who've decided to cut off a part of themselves and not have views. Um, But they need to be challenged intelligently and robustly. And then, as I say, you should have someone from the left as well. And they should be challenged intelligently and robustly. But, you know, your heart sinks. The concept of the BBC remains brilliant amidst the jungle of news and the kind of power of newspapers like the mail and the times partly a power because they so terrify these layers of managers by the way it doesn't work in quite the same way with the labor government you know yes they want to appease this one when labor in power they did appoint a labor supporting director general and chairman but they were so bashed about by the newspapers. Again, they were more scared of the Tory newspapers than the Labour government. Anyway, look, I could go on, but this isn't the purpose of today. The purpose of today is your questions. So as I say, we didn't have any earlier this week. So this is a question time bonus special. And let's get going. First of all, uh, Stephen Murray. I'm a dentist in Ireland and I love the podcast. I I hope you listen, Stephen, while you're doing the fillings and, you know, root canal treatment. Uh, Or he listens every week, Stephen. During lockdown, it was on a Sunday night, driving back from checking in on my elderly aunt. Not the most romantic way of listening to the podcast I've heard, Stephen. Oh, these days it's walking back from work. Yeah, that has a certain kind of glamorous tinge to it. Anyway... Uh, He's happy to add uh, uh, to your collective, Rock and Roll Politics Collective, with dental advice as required, as long as it doesn't stretch too far beyond don't eat sugary things and do attend your dentist regularly. Okay, there's a bit of free advice for you all, our Rock and Roll Politics dentist. Actually, I've got a kind of filling, Stephen. Any chance, Stephen, of... No, 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 I'm joking. Anyway... He wonders whether race and family background play any part in uh, the current Tory leadership contest or in previous contests. Uh, This has come up occasionally with uh, Sunak seemingly behind in the contest, and it's very difficult to quantify, frankly. I think it might be a factor uh, in the fact that Sumac hasn't stormed ahead, but quite limited, because remember when he was doling out money during the pandemic in the form of the furlough scheme, he was highly popular as a chancellor with Tory party members. He topped the poll of Tory party members at Conservative Home. I think there are other factors as to why he has uh, been outmaneuvered by Liz Truss in the positioning of um, the two candidates in this contest. Anyway, Stephen, thank you very much. And remember, dentistry services on offer. 
Connor Jones says, uh, hi, Steve, if you can remember, oh, yeah, we've got another focus group here. Denise Willier is another uh, listener whose focus group is her mother. Anyway, now, Connor, if you remember, I wrote in a while ago describing how my mum and gran, both uh, people who generally vote Tory, had completely been put off the Tory party by Johnson and had started to warm up to Starmer. I can now report that Liz Truss has failed to win them back. My mum does like Rishi, though, whereas my nan doesn't. The general verdict on Truss is she's weird and will be useless at reducing the cost of living. Starmer's freeze on energy bills seems popular as well, and I get the sense the simplicity of it makes it easier to cut through. Yeah, so my question, do you think the trust camp realises how much damage their campaign is doing to her popularity among the general public? Do you think they plan to rectify it once in power? Uh, Well, Connor, the thing is, what you say during a leadership campaign matters, especially one where you acquire power immediately afterwards. I mean, Keir Starmer is in some trouble for reneging on his pledges he made during the Labour leadership contest uh, after the December 2019 election. Um, But Liz Truss comes in after a contest as Prime Minister where she has said certain things will happen almost immediately. I think she's going to have to deliver them. Now, how you then try and pitch it to the wider electorate is an interesting uh, question. Um, But she will have to begin by reflecting on the leadership contest. People have asked me at the Edinburgh Festival, do I think she believes what she says? I don't even know whether she knows the answer to that, but it doesn't really matter. She said it, and therefore will have to implement uh, quite a lot of it. Um, Some of it she will get out of, like her silly thing about ignoring Nicola Sturgeon and the juries out about Macron and all those sort of teenage impulsive responses to please the immediate crowd, uh, which are characteristic of hers. But um, yeah, it's um, completely likely that she will have to deal and deliver on the rest of the stuff she said and then there will be dun, 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 consequences uh thank you uh connor keep keep us informed of your focus group let us know if they decide they like her or are now convinced forever that they're not going back to the conservatives under her uh, now neil Gwynn has uh written a detailed note he's a civil engineer about the whole structure of the water industry, uh, something we talked about in the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, and he, he says, first of all, and above all, climate change is the main factor in the sort of uh, uh, crises erupting around the water industry. He agrees with me and others that the structure, the way the UK has structured the water industry um, is a factor, but above all, it's climate change and the storms and this heavy rainfall and so on, uh, where the creaking ancient infrastructure it, it, it was never remotely up to dealing with a lot of things in modern times, but certainly not that. And it's enough, we had a lot of talk on climate change in the podcast before last. Um, and here is another example. But he also adds, Neil, before privatisation, water was generally with local authorities. We had municipal engineers at local government level 
who looked at water but also worked on highways and inputted into planning strategy. That meant there was holistic planning and understanding uh, of the whole sector as a system. For instance, they would understand the impact of designating land for development with water and sewage. But it was chronically underfunded. Yeah. Privatisation and outsourcing broke the system and fragmented it. This, these are the themes of these privatised industries. Uh, fragmentation and continued, actually, uh, inadequate investment. Uh, that's me speaking. There's no longer municipal engineers. This is Neil speaking. They don't exist. Local authorities manage roads and planning. The Environment Agency manages impacts on rivers. And the water companies are managed by Ofwat. Regulation is also interesting. They're effective monopolies. So how do you undertake competition? Brilliant points. And thank you for the many other points you make. Um, This is it. You know, you quite often hear people say, oh, well, the solution to this is better regulation. But how do you regulate monopolies? Um, They've replaced the public monopolies with private monopolies, uh, but have lost something in the public monopolies, even though Deal makes absolutely clear the investment was inadequate then as well. Thank you very much. Keep us in I've got a feeling this is going to run and run, this story. Now, we've had a lot of people wondering about whether Boris Johnson is going to make a comeback. Uh, Simon Lockyer is one who uh, wonders this. Gillian Charlesworth writes, I've just... Uh, finished the live session from Edinburgh. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jilly. Most entertaining. She says, thank you very much. Uh, That was the previous podcast, which is why we're doing this question time special. You asked the audience to vote on whether Liz Truss would win or lose the next election. And overwhelmingly, they said lose. But there's a third possibility that she doesn't fight the next election. What are the chances of a Johnson return? The speculation seems to be growing on this. And another one from Matthew Ryder. I'm continuing to enjoy rock and roll politics as a relatively new listener. I find it refreshing to hear the views of someone who avoids looking for the easy answers. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, Hoping to be at King's Place uh, for this autumn. Yeah, King's Place, Matthew, September the 19th, the Liz Truss special. See you there for that one. She'll have been Prime Minister for two weeks. We'll be starting... Oh, Jesus, to, to make sense of it all. Uh, September the 19th, uh, it's gonna, we're going to have a good good evening and a few drinks. Ambulances will be on standby, you know, for people who get too miserable. No, no, it's not going to be miserable. It's going to be good. Anyway, Matthew also talks about Boris Johnson returning. I don't think he will. I think he thinks he might, uh, but that's uh, different to the circumstances, even if she fails spectacularly and they find the space to remove her before the next election, I don't think they will return to him. Um, However, I've got him wrong in the past. Um, He does tend to defy normal kind of political rules. He doesn't only break rules, he doesn't even conform to the patterns of the past on which rules are kind of, or predictions are based. So, um, you know, it could happen. But I think more will emerge about the chaos of his leadership in the coming months. And, um, you know, meanwhile, he'll go off making millions uh, and probably might change his mind about returning. But I think it's certainly on his mind now, or else he would leave the House of Commons and make millions without having to declare it all, which he's got to do, although maybe he'll forget. Who knows? God, what an autumn we've got coming up. And he's going to the Tory party conference, apparently. What theatre? Okay, on we go. Mark Williams. 
This weekend, a headline in The Guardian caught my eye. New Tory leader urged to scrap MPs break uh, party conferences amid cost of living crisis. Yeah, this is a call for the party conferences to be scrapped and Parliament to continue in session. And uh, yeah, Mark goes on to analyse these party conferences and uh, wonders whether it's a kind of act of madness, really, to clear the diary every autumn as they continue to do. Um, I'll tell you why they are still held, Mark, and that is they make money for the political parties. The parties are broke, but uh, uh, big companies uh, pay a hell of a lot of money to attend, to book stalls and all the rest of it. And that's really why they do it. I used to really look forward to going to party conferences. I've been to one hell of a lot of them. But nowadays I come back and think, well, that was a total waste of time. And although the leader's speeches kind of frame an argument to tell us where they have decided to place themselves uh, in the autumn of each year, uh, even that can change quite a lot. I mean, I can't remember the Keir Starmer speech from last year. I know he spent a huge amount of time on it. I can't remember what the essence of the argument was, if there was one. I I know he had every intention of making one. And if you remember, what it became remembered for more than anything else was his put-down of uh, people shouting at him in the hall and uh, his office were thrilled. But I can tell you, the perception out there is just of a deeply troubled party when that happens. And by the way, if he succumbs to pressure from advisors to sort of be seen taking on sections of his party this autumn, the voters will respond in the same way. Um, And I can't, as for Johnson's speech last year, do you remember it was all about... uh, Bon Govi, because Gove had been in a disco hall and everyone said, this is brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I share your scepticism these days about party conferences, uh, Mark. Anyway, thank you, Andy Hall. Keep up the good work on these podcasts. Thank you very much. I enjoy listening to them as I walk to the shops. We're not getting many glamorous locations for listening this week. Um, oh, yeah, but this gets really exciting. Uh, and uh, Andy adds... It used to be a walk to M&S, but increasingly little. Okay, thank you, Andy, for that. Was there a moment in 2019 when Remain politicians failed to coalesce around a strategy to reverse Brexit? They couldn't have reversed it, Andy. Uh, But there was unquestionably in that hung parliament uh, a, a chance to stop a hard Brexit, either by coalescing around May's deal, which was a bad deal in many respects, but a thousand times better than the deal negotiated by Lord Frosty Frost, uh, who disowns his own deal while proclaiming it to have been a triumphant act of British exceptionalism. By the way, Frosty's coming back, isn't he? God almighty. He will be found out, trust me. But at the moment, he's the great hero for negotiating something he now disowns. Uh, so they could have coalesced around the May deal. I think Corbyn, in fairness, uh, you know, Corbyn is blamed virtually for Brexit. But I think he would, if he had had control of his parliamentary party, have uh, either abstained or found a way that the May deal went through, in which case Johnson would never have been prime minister. The Tory party would have split. Or there was a chance to coalesce around one of the amendments. You know, Nick Bowles and Peter Kyle, both Remainers, uh, put forward an amendment whereby Britain, in effect, became Norway. It was a Norway position. And um, that one fell as well. So the winners were the small number of hardline Brexiteers in the Tory party uh, because MPs could not agree on an alternative route. Thank you, Andy. Uh, Simonon Honoré, I hope I've pronounced uh, 
uh, that correctly. Um, oh, I, I get so much from your thoughtful podcast. Thank you so much. Reflecting on your reflections at the Edinburgh Festival, uh, there's a link between PR and tackling climate change and much else in a str- strategic way through electoral reform, which tends to produce coalition governments, hence more consensus, hence more possibility of planning beyond the next election. Germany is a good example. PR can lead to that level of forward planning, but it can also, um, the electoral reform special is looming. Um, and I'm giving it a lot of thought at the moment. But just to put the alternative now, um, it can do, but it can lead to considerable uncertainty as well. For sure, Merkel was there for a long time, um, but she worked with varying partners at different points. Um, and those partners could be, as from her perspective, unreliable. Collaboration is not necessarily always a good thing. Look at how Nick Clegg gullibly fell for the economic policies and public service reforms of David Cameron and George Osborne. Uh, sometimes those kind of things need challenging. Now, I think the Lib Dems have learned from that and are taking a very different path now uh, under Ed Davey. But what if they, at another point, find another Clegg who um, falls for uh, things that should be challenged? So anyway, uh, but I'm, I promise you, coming to the electoral reform special, once we've got through the early weeks of Liz Truss, I shall be uh, turning to it. And I'll give you all warning. So, you know, I have to book the O2 stadium or something for it because I know there's a lot of interest. Okay, Mark Harper, a regular emailer. I see Truss has now said she'll solve the health care costs by shifting money from the NHS to social care. Once again, this totally misses the point. The biggest problem in hospitals and care homes is a lack of staff. And thanks to Brexit, we have lost all our lovely, hardworking and extremely competent EU staff. I know, Mark, you're absolutely uh, right about that. And there needs to be some deep thinking about this. There's no point pretending you've got a social care plan without a plan for social care. Uh, you know, the staffing, the uh, aim for the highest level of qualification and the best staff in the best homes like they do in Northern Europe. But, you know, she said she's going to shift money from the NHS. She won't. She can't go into the next election cutting spending on the NHS. No way. So she's going to have to find money from social care and keep the money on the NHS, which is, as you know, Mark, the minimum required. Uh, But yeah, the staffing thing is such a big issue. Um, I I know there are some in uh, the shadow cabinet who had wanted to sort of do an audit on the number of staff required in the NHS and other public services. But the kind of caution of the leader's office has uh, prevented that so far from happening, but maybe it will uh, in the future. There's so much space now for Labour. You've got a new Prime Minister hailing the virtues of borrowing, but she just plans to do it, spend the money on the wrong things. Um, here is space which new Labour never had in 1997, as some from that period have told me and reflected on over this August. But let's see how uh, Labour develops its arguments. Big week for Labour next week, as well as for the Tory party and the entire country. Uh, Gareth Curzon, Uh, How should a strategic approach to public services in the state be couched in a way that the British public will find accessible, both in terms of policy and presentation? Well, there's a big question, Gareth. I haven't got much time now. I mean, that would need to be a special as well, like the electoral reform special. I've just done a chapter for a new book on the 1945 Labour government. And planning really was its whole 
raison d'etre, planning from the centre, as it was decided. Um, and as a result, many levers were created and pulled in uh, highly effective directions in most cases, not all. And yet they actually didn't really put the case in a way that was uh, accessible and sustainable and were out of power in 1951. There are ways of making the case for planning um, and uh, you know, certainly need it in the sort of wild anarchy we're trying to navigate at the moment. But um, yeah, another podcast for that, Gareth. Um, okay, Andy Weeks, uh, really enjoyed the podcast and have been a subscriber now for two months. Oh, well, you know, you go back and listen to the many that preceded that, Andy. Any ins- Oh, yeah, this, this is the one about why Dateline, this BBC programme, is being uh, dropped. It will save about 5p, Andy. And it's a, by the way, I'm not saying this subjectively. I do appear on it occasionally, um, but about four times a year, so not very often. But it is a shame that a program where people uh, reflect and discuss, it's not a loud uh, kind of angry uh, kind of fight like uh, the Question Time program, which these tabloid managers think is great. But, you know, there would have been a meeting where someone says, oh, let's change that, let's use our own people, our own staff. Um, And then there would be no analysis of why that would limit discussion. Um, And as I say, the discussion should have been, it's half an hour too short, which it is. Jay Jackson. I've written a piece for the Mile End Institute. Yeah, the Mile End Institute is is, is brilliant. It's part of um, University in London uh, about the Tory contest. It's a very good piece, Jay. I've I've read it, but as our listeners haven't, I will only uh, read your summary. I wondered if you agreed with me that the contest is actually all about the legacy of David Cameron, not Margaret Thatcher. Though, of course, I understand Cameron was, in some senses, a Thatcherite. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, the cam- remember this whole era began in 2010 with David Cameron again uh, Cameron recurs regularly in the podcast Jay it's an excellent piece and uh, to make sense of uh, what has followed although Thatcher is important as a mythologized figure the Cameron economic policies the Cameron public service reforms the Cameron decision to call a referendum all the seeds were sown long ago um, so uh, yeah, and thank you for your piece as well, uh, Jay, which uh, you can all read, I think, uh, on the Mile End Institute website. <music> Dominic Lee says, I was listening to your rock and roll politics uh, podcast whilst driving through Texas and Louisiana. Well, now we're talking. Now we're talking about listening in a cool context. And, oh, yeah, Dominic adds, I'd recommend Texas to any of the wonderful rock and roll cooperative as it has many political hotspots from the JFK assassination spot to three presidential libraries, LBJ and the two Bushes. George Osborne waxes lyrical about LBJ. So it's interesting to see why why that uh, that may be. Very similar dynamic with JFK and LBJ to Blair and Brown, the more senior leapfrog by the younger telegenic candidate. Got me thinking if anyone in the R&R cooperative can come up with more holiday destinations for all us politicos, a spin-off travel podcast, rock and roll on the road politics. 
Brilliant idea, Dominic. Now, come on, where should we all go, us uh, political freaks in this uh, cooperative uh, for our holiday? Well, I think we should start with um, uh, Dominic's recommendations. We can hit the road and um, get to Texas and there explore the presidential libraries. Yeah. Do any of you read the biographies of LBJ by, God, I've forgotten his bloody name, you know, the one that each one is about 10,000 pages. He makes War and Peace look like a kind of soundbite. Um, but uh, thank you for that. And that's a great theme. And I think it's one we should end on because um, this is a little bonus podcast which has become quite a big bonus podcast because the question's so good. And I haven't had time to go through them all. I've read them all. I've made notes of them all. Uh, and the reason is not in terms of quality or anything. I've just, I think it's enough. To, I've got others here on the list, but I think we better stop at this point. But I say this is a bonus. So next week, there will be a new prime minister. And uh, yeah, there will be uh, even more urgent need for us to gather together to make sense of it all. So just a reminder of the email, steverick14 at iCloud.com. And yeah, don't forget King's Place on September the 19th, the start of the Liz Truss era special. And uh, thank you those who subscribe to Patreon. A new bonus podcast will be coming soon with the start of this new month. The relationship between Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell as part of our series on prime ministers and their confidants. Okay, look, uh, enjoy these few days uh, before the next podcast, before the beginning of what looks like being the Liz Truss era. And if it turns out to the Rishi Sunak era, I can tell you, A, we'll be amazed and B, we'll still have lots to explore. Thanks so much. Have a good few days. Bye.